reflecting in this series that we started last week, which is on the parables of Jesus in the book of Luke. A parable is simply a proverb, a riddle, an allegory, or a metaphor, even a simile that Jesus used to create often, uh, to, to communicate oftentimes a simple point. It's an earthly story with spiritual meaning, oftentimes illustrating as many points as there are characters in the story. Jesus really liked to tell stories. Apparently, God likes to tell stories as well. Nearly 70% of the Bible is in narrative form, uh, which is good because we like to hear stories. Would you stand as we hear this story from the Lord this morning, starting in verse 12? This is Jesus speaking. And he said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. That's a lot of sense. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the gospel of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we simply pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Speaking of the cement being wet, uh, last week had a lot of good comments about uh, our service Probably the number one was it was too cold, and I said I would get here and have the air while we were setting up, and then I would turn it off at this point in time, so it's off. Back to our business. I'm sure you all remember the 1987 Academy Awards, right? Just like it was yesterday. Um, Sure you remember Best Picture? Best Actor, Best Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, and I know you remember Best Foreign Language Film of 1987, Babette's Feast. Some of you would be familiar with this film. Uh, I don't know how many of you were, and of course I'm being facetious with regard to you remembering the 1987 Academy Awards, but there is a film called Babette's Feast that did win the Academy Award for the Best International or Foreign Language Film in 1987. It is a film uh, that is a Danish film in English subtitles. It's got some French in there as well. The plot is set in 19th century Denmark. 
Already sounds exciting, doesn't it? Uh, along the coast. And it really is this fantastic story that kind of lures you in, in a way, through the beauty of the scenery, through the simple yet interesting dialogue of the characters, all leading to a feast. Babette's feast. You see, Babette was a French refugee that was living in this small village in Denmark, and she had fled France, and she got connected with these two sisters in this small Danish village who were cultivating a life after the passing of their father, who was a pastor, and seeking to cultivate his congregation and the church in this very pietistic little village that was very proper. Um, It was a veritable Christian ghetto, if you will, not that any of us know anything about that. And as a result, uh, which is not uncommon in Christian ghettos and subcultures, this little village lacked joy. And this little village lacked depth. And this little village lacked purpose in many ways. And here, this seemingly insignificant person, Babette, shows up from France. And she meets these two sisters and wants to become their housekeeper and their cook for free. They can't turn this offer down. And year after year, day after day, for 14 years, Babette serves this family. Another little undercurrent that's going on in the film is that Babette, coming from France, having fled, also renewed an annual lottery ticket every year in France. And on the 14th year of her being in the small village in Denmark, she won the lottery. 10,000 francs. What in the world would a servant, a housekeeper, a cook like Babette do with 10,000 francs? I'll tell you what she did. She started to think about and prepare and craft a meal. No one really knew exactly what she was up to. People did start to pay attention when one delivery after another was flooding this small Danish village from France. Food and ingredients and drinks from France that seems strange. She starts to gather people together in this particular meal in her 14th year there is going to be an honor of the sister's father and the pastor of this village on his 100th birthday at what would have been his 100th birthday. And she crafts this unbelievable meal. And the people that come that are pietistic, dry, lacking joy, are determined. In fact, they talk with each other. We're going to just kind of go through the motions and eat this weird stuff and act like we enjoy this meal, but we're not going to enjoy it. As if like enjoying a feast is a bad thing. Very worldly in their mind to be consumed with good food and good drink and to have joy. But as she starts to prepare and as she starts to serve the meal, you start to see and hear rumblings among the people. What is this? What is this? And they start to be progressively lured and wooed in to the beauty of this feast. There was one particular guest there that was not from the village. It was a nephew of a woman in the village who just happened to serve on the queen's court. And as a result of that, was a little more sophisticated. And as a result of that, had traveled the world. And as a result of that, had eaten in an amazing cafe in Paris called Cafe Anglaise. 
And as he was partaking of the food, and the other people were partaking of food that they had never heard of before and never tasted before, this man seemed to be pretty astute in knowing all the dishes they were eating. And he was educating everybody at the table. And as the food continued to flow, and as the drink continued to flow, the whole mood and atmosphere dramatically changed. And this particular astute young man said, this meal tastes identical to one of the best meals I've ever had in France at Café Anglaise. And at the end of the meal, it is revealed that Babette, when she was in France, was the head chef of Café Anglaise. And she would regularly serve tables of 12 people for 1,000 francs a piece. And here she did, prepared this meal, gave her energy and her effort and her beauty and all of her money to pour forth and spread an unbelievable feast. you got to watch it. That's what God does as well. One writer talking about Babette's feast said this, Babette's gifts break down their distrust and superstitions, elevating them physically and spiritually. Old wrongs are forgotten, ancient loves are rekindled, and mystical redemption of the human spirit settles over the table. Is it because they read the Bible the whole time? Is it because they prayed the whole time? Maybe they sung hymns. Maybe they did creeds. Nope. They just ate unbelievable food and drank unbelievable wine. Maybe wine like what Jesus did in John chapter 2. Right? His first miracle. They run out of wine. And Jesus comes and he turns water into wine. It's amazing actually, and this won't be the last you hear of it from me and I won't get off on too much of a side road today, how central food and drink are in the Bible. We will have fun discussing together maybe sometime in a short mini-series the theology of food and drink and scripture, but for now I want us to focus on this idea of a banquet and God spreading a feast that would be reminiscent of the feast that Babette spread before those people, but far better and far deeper. Yet not uncharacteristic of this. Hear this quote again and think about the feast that God is preparing in Luke 14. It's a feast that will break down distrust and superstitions. Elevating people physically and spiritually. Those things matter and they go together. Old wrongs will be forgotten. Ancient loves will be rekindled. And a mystical redemption of the human spirit will settle over the table forever. That's pretty awesome. And this is just the beginning. It's the opening of the sermon. Right? Luke 14 is a proclamation and a statement that tells us God is preparing a feast. Period. Big idea of Luke 14. God is preparing a feast. Come and partake. God is preparing a feast. Will we come and partake? You know, there's immediately some resistance. And this happens a lot, by the way, in sermons and in life and when we read Scripture. 
We read something that is a statement of truth and then we immediately have resistance to it. I can't delineate all the resistance we would have to this reality of God spreading and preparing a feast before his people, but it seems to me two primary aversions we have to embracing the reality of God spreading and preparing and embracing this feast that he has for us is number one, we don't think of God as a party thrower. Anne Lamott humorously describes God in one of her books, it's her book on writing called Bird by Bird, as a high school principal in a gray suit unhappily leafing through your files. I don't know exactly how you see God, but my guess would be because of the culture we live in, God essentially is a cosmic killjoy. But that's not how the Bible portrays him. Luke chapters 14 and 15 actually are encompassed and entitled by scholars, the party parables. Interestingly enough, Jesus talks in Luke 14 and 15 often about death because he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. But he also talks a lot about parties. And so people call these parables, this group of them, the party parables. Do you see God as the ultimate party thrower? It's hard for us to, so that's where we have an aversion to God preparing a feast. Another, thing, another aversion we have to God preparing a feast is the type of feast that God prepares is an unconventional feast. Because you see in verses 12, 13, and 14 at the beginning, before he tells the parable, we read this. He said to the man, or to us for that matter, who had invited him, when you give a dinner, imagine this by the way, I don't have time to go into all the details that we think about when we give a dinner or we throw a party or we have a wedding or whatever. Just think about all the details that go on and what our thoughts are. And a lot of them have to do with the guest list, right? Which oftentimes is characterized by our insecurity and our exclusivity and our pride and our reputation, right? We're not unlike these Pharisees that Jesus is hanging out with here. We're much more like him than we'd ever want to be. But Jesus says this, and this is totally countercultural. And this is, challenges this notion that God would prepare a banquet. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends. Crazy. Or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, the type of banquet that God is preparing does not look like the banquets we see in Southern Living or Garden and Gun or Pottery Barn. Because the kind of the banquet that God is preparing and the kind of parties God likes to throw aren't very marketable. They're a little more radical. And we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with this diversity that God is bringing into his people. Let's look here in a little more detail at this passage as, we, as this narrative unfolds, knowing that God is preparing a feast. We resist the reality that God prepares a feast because we see God as a cosmic killjoy who doesn't know how to throw a party. And then secondly, even if we were to accept the fact that God is throwing a party, we have this eerie sense that it's not a party we want to be a part of. Because there might be a bunch of people there that aren't like us. And what I want us to see, what God wants us to see, is that's exactly right, and that's why it's awesome. 
Because see, when we exclude people, we actually exclude God Himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a little something about excluding people growing up in Nazi Germany, said this, Every principle of selection and every separation by common work, local conditions, or family connections is the greatest danger to a Christian community. Hear this at the beginning of this church while the cement is wet and while we don't have our sea legs. Exclusivity is the greatest danger to any Christian community. Why? When the way of intellectual or spiritual selection is taken, the human element always insinuates itself and robs the fellowship of its spiritual power and effectiveness for the church. It drives us into sectarianism. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. And the poor brother, Christ, is knocking at the door. Whatever you did for the least of these, Jesus told him, you did for me. What happens in this narrative, in this banquet that God is throwing in this crazy story? It's pretty simple like this. I think you can follow this. He invites. There's regrets. He re-invites. And then there's another kind of regret. How does he invite initially? He invites many people. He says, go and tell people I'm throwing a banquet. I'm having a feast. Go bring them here. It's going to be fantastic. Who should we go tell? Go tell all people. All people? Do we really invite all people to come to the banquet of the Lord? This might mean something to some of you. Others of you don't care, but I'm I'm reformed. I kind of have this thing about God's sovereignty and the way He brings people to Himself. and, And I don't know, I'm a little... We just invite whoever? In the early 1600s in the Netherlands, there was a seminal theological document written called the Canons of Dort. I'm sure you've read it. And the Canons of Dort essentially was written to communicate one clear point. God chooses His people. But what does it have to say with how do we invite people to a great banquet? Funny you should ask. In the second main point of doctrine from the Canons of Dort, Article 5, the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all says this from 1614 in Holland. Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in His good pleasure sends the gospel. To all nations and all people without differentiation and without discrimination. And so the great banquet that God is preparing, all are invited to come and partake. But secondly, there are people that have regrets, as in like, I regret this, I can't make it. We see this in the text, these people offer excuses. 
And by the way, the excuses are as lame, in fact, lamer than they sound to a modern Western ear. When you start to unpack some of Middle Eastern culture, they become even more lame. As you could imagine in Middle Eastern culture, even right now, but then definitely in their time, um, rich agricultural land was not plentiful. Last time I checked, the Middle East is a desert, right? And so if there was going to be a piece of land that was purchased that was going to be for agricultural or farming purposes, they say in the Middle East, as strange as this might sound, someone would want to see that piece of property before they bought it. I don't know. Someone might want to check out the drainage. Or someone might want to see how much annual rainfall it gets a year. Or someone might want to see exactly what size the piece of property is. Of course, they would want to do that. In fact, scholars say that it often was a process that took months and months before a purchase of a piece of land was made. Not unlike, this is not true today because of technology completely, but still not unlike it is in the way when we, in the way in which we buy houses. But it's absolutely absurd and unheard of for a person to say, oh yeah, I can't be there, sorry. I bought a piece of land and I gotta go see it. Or, I've got these oxen and I gotta see if they work. Like five of them. Well, that's really lame because oxen go in pairs. And it's pertinent that they work together. And so no one would ever, in reality, play out this excuse that the person gives. And then this last excuse, which is probably from lame, lamer to lamest. Are you sorry I can't be there? I'm married. It's like a total non sequitur. It doesn't even make sense. Like there's not, like we, I don't need to get us back into a Middle Eastern mind to realize this is absurd. What I do need us to understand Culturally speaking, and Kenneth Bailey, a scholar, helps us to understand this because I think it's important. He says, imagine a contemporary Western scene, Western as in not like Dodge City, but like the Western world, right? Scene in which the guests arrive and are seated in the living room when the food is ready and the hostess invites the guests to take their places, but to the shock of all, They offer excuses and head for the door. One says, I have to mow the lawn. The second blurts out, I must feed the cat. The third says, there are bills on my desk waiting to be paid. And all three of them walk out the door. Can you imagine that? You prepared a feast. They said they would be there. They are there. They're sitting in your living room just waiting for you to put food on the table. And then they all peace out. That's what's happening here. That's how absurd this is. Why in the world would they not want to partake of this banquet? I remember being in New York over 10 years ago. It was my first trip to New York, actually, and I was serving with an inner city mission there, which is really historic, called the Bowery Mission. It's down in the Soho area of New York, and at the time it was a lot different than it is now. But we uh, did a traveling soup kitchen with them, which was pretty fantastic. We would go to different parks, some of the smaller parks um, in New York, and pull up in this big paneled van, and, and it was uh, in the winter, 
and um, pull out these hot soup carts and people would come from all over uh, to come and to partake and, and we were to engage in conversation and distribute the food and it was really great. And uh, another thing that was unique about this particular visit is that we were able, if the conversation proceeded in such a way where there seemingly might be some receptivity to this, able to offer one of the homeless uh, people to engage in the possibility of moving into the shelter at the Bowery, um, which had limited numbers of space and which was really fantastic. One, honestly, one of the best-run shelters probably in the world um, as far as funding structure and programs they do and addiction recovery and vocational training, all from a Christian perspective, but not in a way that shoves it down people's throat. And it's really, really fantastic. And so to be able to have open beds in this particular facility was amazing. And there were two open beds. And the leaders just said, if someone seems interested, bring them to us. So I was like, well, I, I got to see that. You know, I, I want to give people soup, and I don't want to be disrespectful. But gosh, I'm excited to offer some of this good, like, come, there's a great thing. Like, you don't have to sleep on the street anymore. I probably tried to engage in, in that part of the conversation and offer that reality to no less than 50 people, none of whom would take me up on the offer. And I understand there's a lot of complicated aversions to that reality, and I'm not trying to be simplistic. But how much are we like that? How much are people in general like that? Living on the street, spiritually impoverished, maybe even physically impoverished, and then there is this banquet that the Lord is laying before us to come and to feast, to come and to connect with Him, to come and experience true hospitality and redemption and revolution and wholeness and shalom. Eh, we got other things to do. How often are we making excuses? Either ultimately by never coming to faith in the first place, or even if we're in faith, how often are we making excuses to move into deeper intimacy with God? And by the way, oftentimes the excuses that we make that put us between us and God aren't bad things in and of themselves. In fact, they're really good things. It's not bad or sinful to buy a field or to want to engage oxen or lo and behold to be married. Those aren't bad things. They're good things unless they become God things. And that's the root of idolatry is that we turn good things into God things. And we turn good things like our children or our jobs or money or our reputation or even our religious practices. When we turn good things into ultimate or God things, we're making excuses and we're not partaking in the feast that God has brought us to. The story continues, nevertheless, and there's this re-invitation. So there was an invitation, regrets were given, excuses were made, all of them lame, and then the master, understandably, who's throwing this banquet, who's cooked this meal, who had all these people in his living room, now they've left, is, guess what? Not happy. Right? I mean, how would you be? By the way, it's completely appropriate to try to put yourself into biblical narratives. And in fact, if we don't do that, we're going to miss what God's trying to tell us. If we could try to attach to some degree what it might feel like to be this master. He was angry. But what does he do with his anger? Does he pout? Does he cuss? Does he kick the dirt? 
Does he throw all the food on the floor? Forget it. Never doing this again. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. No. What he does is he reprocesses his anger and turns it into grace. I think we could close in prayer with that statement just in life if we just wanted to sit here and think about what would it be like, I don't know, as a husband, as an employer, as a child, as a human, what would it be like to reprocess our anger and turn it into grace? Let's close in prayer. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. Y'all don't know me well enough yet. Um, I appreciate appreciate you bowing your heads. That was not what I expected. Um, We're not ending there. But it's amazing what this guy does. He re-invites people. He says, fine, 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 fine. Forget the first people I brought or invited. You just go tell everybody you know. Go to the highways and the hedges. Find the real crippled people. Find the really poor people. Find the people that you would never ever even talk to. Go to the bad parts of town. Go to the ditches. Go to the brothels. Go everywhere. Go to the gamblers and the tax collectors and go to the Gentiles. You. Me. It's amazing. And what's happening here is he's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, probably not grape juice, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain, great imagery, the covering that is cast over all the peoples. The veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. He is preparing a feast for us to come and partake for any and everybody that would come. At the beginning of the bulletin, turn to the first page of the bulletin at the top. This is not my quote. This is a quote that's been used among many churches throughout time. This is what God's doing in Isaiah 25. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome to all who sin and need a Savior, anyone, to all who are spiritually weak and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who are broken and long for healing, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and want to be satisfied, and to whomsoever will come. That's what we're doing here. We're trying to create a banquet. Week in and week out. Who's invited? Everyone. The burned, the bored, the cynical, the spiritual, the faithful, the unfaithful, the skeptic, the believer. Whomsoever shall come is invited to come and to taste of this banquet and receive this reprocessed anger 
and experience grace. See, grace is messy. Our shame stops us from receiving it. I can't go to that banquet. Look how I'm dressed. I can't go to that banquet. Do you have any idea what I did last night? I can't go to that banquet. Look at my mind. Hear my thoughts. Feel my heart. I can't go to that banquet. I got too much shame. Or I can't go to that banquet. I got too much pride. I'm self-sufficient. I'm an American. I'm rich. The story ends, unfortunately, with another regret. The master says, not everyone who has heard this will taste of my banquet. So the people regret earlier in the end, the master, Jesus, says, well, I regret to inform you that you will not taste and see that the Lord is good. I regret to inform you that you will not take my body and my blood and feast upon it. But those who will, how amazing is it for us? In Isaac Watts' historic hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, he says this, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? That's what happens. Not everybody will take of this feast, but everybody is offered to partake of this feast. And those of you who are partaking of the feast, be weary, be wary, be careful of pride. Your constant chorus in your heart and your mind ought to be, why me? What am I doing here? This is amazing. There was a builder in St. Louis named Dan Stegman. I got to know him at the church that I served in there at the end of graduate school. And Dan was a fantastic developer, both commercial and residential. And I'm sure a number of you know uh, developers that are good. And they're pretty amazing with what they do and the amounts of money they can make. It's pretty fun to see people take dominion, literally, in those kind of ways. And so Dan Stegman was one of these people. Um, One of the things he did uh, for himself personally while I was in St. Louis uh, was built a new house for he and his family. And it was amazing. You know, beautiful, every nook and cranny, well thought, one that you would just be like, ah, unbelievable. Well, when it was all said and done and finished, what do you do? You have a party, right? You've got to have a housewarming party. This place is amazing. And who do you invite? Your friends and your family and your rich neighbors to impress them. You know who Dan Stegman invited to his housewarming party? The plumbers that plumbed his house. The electricians that wired his house. The tile workers that put tile in the bathrooms. And all the other blue-collar people that made his house a home. And he had a party for them. That's what God's doing. God's taking us. And he's inviting us to a party. And he's telling us, invite others to this party. Be agents of my redemption. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story. We thank you that you communicate in stories because it helps us to understand more clearly and more easily. We thank you that you're preparing for us a great feast, a great banquet.